Everybody loves the touchdown. Throws to the back of the end zone, and it is touchdown by Holmes. The grand slam. Fly ball to center field. Ethier has done it again. It's a grand slam. The buzzer beater. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer. But how did those players get to that moment? And who built the venue and signed the contracts? We dig into the business side of sports and give you the answers. This is Sports Business Radio. Now, from our studios in Portland, Oregon, with Sports Business Radio, here's your host, Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports on a global scale. We're celebrating our 10th year on the air throughout 2014. Thanks for listening for the past 10 years been a terrific ride so far nice feature on sports business radios 10 years on the air by the associated press this last week go to sportsbusinessradio.com you can read the feature that was done on us you can visit our sports business blog download the sbr podcast on demand you can find that at sportsbusinessradio.com become our facebook friend or follow me on twitter that's also at sportsbusinessradio.com my handle on twitter is at sb radio coming up on today's show zvi geffen who is the brand manager for tops trading cards how is the trading card industry changing in the digital age we will talk to zvi geffen from tops on today's show dr raul desai our sports injury expert is joining me I'm really intrigued with the epidemic of Tommy John surgeries for pitchers under the age of 25. In the last 12 months alone, 20 Major League Baseball pitchers have had Tommy John surgery. It used to be at the end of your career. Now it's for players under the age of 25. What's going on? We'll find out from Dr. Desai. And then one of my favorite guests, Christine Brennan, our friend from USA Today. She's a sports columnist. She covers sports for ABC News, and she's a commentator on NPR. The decline of golf. One million participants a year are deciding to hang up the golf clubs and stop playing golf. Why is it? What can golf do to grow its sport? Also, 67 total African-American players in Major League Baseball as we celebrate the anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier this last week. Why is the number of African-Americans so low in Major League Baseball? We'll discuss that. I'm joined by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? Doing good, doing good. Enjoying uh, this time of year. I, I love the Masters. Always a fun tournament to watch. So that was fun. I was glued to the tube uh, throughout the weekend last weekend, so that was exciting. And I'm in a hockey guy, too, so NHL playoffs are heating up, and that's always fun for me, too. So it's interesting to hear you say you were glued to the TV. There was no Tiger. Phil didn't make the cut. Rory McIlroy wasn't in the mix. The ratings for the Masters, lowest since 2004, so 10 years. And a lot of people I talked to said, you know what? I didn't watch. It wasn't compelling, even though there was 20-year-old Jordan Spieth in the mix, Bubba Watson. They didn't watch. Why did you watch? I just, I absolutely love this tournament. I think I'd watch if uh, no names were playing in it. I just always love it. it always <laughs> you like the course. The fun. course is the star, right? <laughs> The course is beautiful, and just how they present it, it's always the coverage is cool. And um, I was interested this year with uh, Bubba because I like him, and then Jordan Spieth, obviously, that dynamic of possibly being the youngest winner ever and almost had it but couldn't quite pull it off. Hello, friends. Do you like that part when uh, <laughs> yeah, Jim Nance? Hello, friends. Uh, yeah, you know, look, I love Bubba Watson. I think he's got a great personality. I love his game. I love the risk-taking 
that he had in that final round. He's up by three shots and he, you know, just totally takes a risky shot and goes yep. for it. And it worked out for him. He did that two years ago when he won as well. Uh, I like the pink golf club he uses. I like his personality. He tweets out a picture of himself having a celebratory dinner from the Waffle House. Uh, he drives a hovercraft uh, for his golf cart. Um, I just think he's got a good personality. I don't know that he's a household name yet, though, and that's one of the problems for golf, and it's something we'll discuss with Christine Brennan on our show today. Another story that caught my eye this week, Griggs, the NCAA... After Shabazz uh, Napier, the UConn guard, said, I've been hungry, and oftentimes I don't get meals, and UConn goes on and wins a national championship, so he had a big platform. That comment made news. NCAA comes out and says, all right, unlimited food, snacks and meals for athletes. What do you think of that? Yeah, that was kind of, I didn't expect that, so I was reading that story too, and it was kind of like, oh, I, I didn't really see it coming, but, you know, I think it's, it's got some weight on either side of the argument. I literally. Think, yeah, yeah, literally. That that could be a problem, too. I don't know if it'll feed to the obesity of college students, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of agree with it. I kind of don't. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence on that one. It, it is interesting. It feels to me a little li- bit like, okay, college athletes, you're forming unions. You're asking to get paid. You're asking to spend less time on the practice field. All right, we'll throw you as much food as you want to try and make them happy. So, you know, the timing to me is a little bit interesting. Also, coming off of Napier's comments, other things that uh, the Legislative Council for the NCAA passed and still need to be uh, completed on a meeting on April 24th, a reduction in penalty for the first positive street drug test during a round championship play. Strength and conditioning coaches must be certified from a nationally accredited certification body. And require a school staff member certified in CPR, first aid, and arterial uh, external defibrillation to be present at all physical, countable, and athletic activities. So, you know, the one that made headlines, obviously, was the food. All right, you guys want food? We'll give you as much food as you want. This is obviously going to cost universities more money. But I think, you know, you're coming off the NCAA tournament and they've got a $14 billion deal with a B with CBS and Turner. And you have one of the star athletes, the most outstanding player of the tournament saying, I'm hungry and I don't get to eat. It made news. And then the other thing I thought that was interesting when Napier was being interviewed right after the game, he said, this is what happens when you put UConn on probation. So he had a few different political statements and Hey, you got to hand it to him. One of them uh, at least had some hand in, making changes with the NCAA as far as their their food is concerned. Sometimes that's what it takes, you know, getting the word out there on the big stage, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, we better do something about this because now the whole world knows about it and it made news, and sometimes that's all it takes is a little comment after a game. Yeah, it's definitely interesting stuff. All right, coming up next, Zvi Geffen, the brand manager for Topps Trading Cards. Interesting industry. How is the trading card industry changing in the digital age? We'll discuss that. Then later in the show, Dr. Raul Desai and Christine Brennan from USA Today Sports. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter, twitter.com slash SBRadio. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher. 
former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples, tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter, so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With the goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215. This is Sports Business Radio. My guest is V. Geffen. He is the senior brand manager with Topps Trading Cards. You can find him on Twitter at Zvi Geffen, or you can find Topps at Topps Cards. Zvi, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for having me. Happy to talk with you. So the card business, it's such an interesting business. A lot of things have gone digital in the last 10 years or so. How has your business changed? Yeah, great question. So our business has changed with the type of content that we offer to consumers. There's also been a digital integration trying to uh, you know, have consumers um, complement their tangible pack opening experience with the digital pack opening experience. But the trading card industry itself has changed pretty dramatically over the last 15 to 20 years. Whereas when I was growing up in the 80s, I just collected base cards and tried to complete sets and collect cards of my favorite players. Now the name of the game is really about autographs and pieces of, me- of memorabilia that can be trapped into the cards. Um, I think that's helped keep the industry relevant, and it's helped uh, keep the consumer closer to the game. And that seems to be a theme that uh, our consumers have really enjoyed, and uh, those are some steps that we keep trying to take to um, keep people interested. When you say pieces of memorabilia, give me some examples. Sure. So commonly, we're talking about jerseys. Um, So those can just be swatch pieces that you cut from a jersey, or they can be patch pieces from a Major League Baseball jersey. For example, you could have the Major League Baseball logo, or if you're dealing with Joey Votto, you could have a piece of the Cincinnati Reds logo or a number. Uh, So there, there are lots of different variations on the jersey memorabilia. And then when you get into our football business, you have things like wristbands, you have cleats, um, the, really, the possibilities are endless when you come to memorabilia and trying to uh, take consumers closer to the game. For people who aren't intimately familiar with your industry, explain to our listeners how you acquire those pieces of memorabilia, whether it's the jersey or the wristband or something that you know is really one of a kind. 
Sure, absolutely. Well, we have our entire licensing department that uh, is focused on autograph deals and contractual uh, contractual agreements, uh, those pieces of memorabilia, and working with the teams, the leagues, uh, different licensors to acquire those pieces. That's great. And, you know, it just seems like everyone's always looking for something that's one of a kind and something that is unique. Talk a little bit about the digital presence. So if I get a trading card, is there something on the card that leads me to go online and activate something digitally? So we've tried a number of different things with that digital integration, and uh, a lot of that has been with sending people online for further action um, from the back of a card. For example, you could list uh, a a website. So an example of that would be our Major League Soccer set, which just released last week. Uh, We have Bloomberg, we partnered with Bloomberg Sports, and Bloomberg Sports published a top 50 uh, ranking of the MLS players on uh, their website, and that updates based on analytical information and their proprietary data, but it updates to give you a ranking of the top 50 MLS players. So on the back of our Major League Soccer cards, we direct people to this website where they can view the list. So that's just a possibility. Uh, Additionally, we have our Tops Bunt, Kick, and Huddle apps for uh, soccer, baseball, and football. Um, Those are basically completely separate as they stand now from the tangible pack opening experience. But that's basically a pack opening experience entirely isolated to the digital world, uh, but you uh, can collect coins, purchase cards online, uh, build up your trophy case, win awards based on um, how the player performs that night in the actual games. They have a statistical integration where um, those points accumulate just like a fantasy league. Amazing. My guest is V. Gaffin. He is the senior brand manager for Topps Trading Cards. Let's talk a little bit more about that MLS card launch you just talked about. I'm based in Portland where people are rabid fans of the Portland Timbers and they have one of the probably best support groups in the world and it's called Timbers Army and I see that you've done your first ever supporter card series. That really interested me because again, Timbers Army here, really a big deal and these supporters groups for Major League Soccer, they take this stuff seriously. They take it very seriously, and I think when you look at the success of MLS, what the league has done and how it's grown so rapidly, the experience of attending a Major League Soccer game has really been exceptional, and I think that's where the league has seen a lot of growth. So what we wanted to do with our supporter group cards was uh, to make reference to these supporter groups that have really differentiated the end game experience from a number of other leagues across the country. And I think when you look at Major League Soccer now from an experience standpoint, there are drastic similarities to what you see in England and abroad with the other successful uh, soccer leagues, whether that be Bundesliga or EP or what the leagues may be, but it's an experience, and you go and you have fun, and you sing with your fans, um, you, you have different chants, there's camaraderie and brotherhood uh, in the stands, and I think that's a big piece of the Major League Soccer success. So what we've done, just like you said, we uh, had supporter group cards that represented a number of the groups across the league, Portland Timbers being one of them, uh, they have a card in the set, and we were happy to include them and think that could be a promising development moving forward. I think that the innovative stuff, more on your MLS cards, it really is a great way to engage 
youth, but it's also uh, you're reaching an audience of Latinos, Hispanics that, uh, you know, maybe wouldn't be reached otherwise unless you did specific cards for them. So you've got a Mexican set as well. Is that true? That is true. So within our 200, uh, 200 card base card set of the Major League Soccer release, we have 10 cards of the Mexican national team. Um, and we thought that was a great way to integrate um, and appeal to the Hispanic market that trends so favorably within Major League Soccer. Um, so this being a World Cup year, obviously we expect soccer momentum to rise and carry over into the World Cup and beyond. Uh, so we wanted to uh, pay homage to that success, you know, have a little bit of an international theme, integrate the Mexican national team, uh, and also pay tribute to uh, U.S. soccer icons uh, that have really developed the game domestically as well. So those guys are represented in our icon autograph subset with guys like Alexi Lalas and Eric Winalda, Kobe Jones. So the soccer names that um, the American public became familiar with uh, back in the 90s, uh, as well as the Mexican, the current Mexican national team stars. And then I see it's not just baseball, it's not just MLS. You've got a UFC line coming out soon as well. Talk about that. Uh, we do have UFC line coming out now. Our, our brand team is working very diligently on that. It consists of a couple of different products, and I know they're really excited and bullish on, on UFC and what that brings to um, uh, really extending that collector base. Uh, having broader appeal uh, to a wider array of consumers, and I think UFC is going to do that for us. You know, it's interesting to me. I've got a nine-year-old daughter, and she has recently become interested in trading cards. And what she does first is she likes looking at the picture on the card, but then she loves going on the back and reading about the player and when they were born and where they're from and what their stats are. So it's kind of re-engaged me again with my youth with <laughs> with trading cards. So you know, whether it's hanging posters in a room of her favorite athletes or, or looking at trading cards, I find as a parent that I've reengaged with the trading cards. Again, I'm sure you hear that a lot from other parents as well. Well, I really like hearing that. And I mean, one of the bigger challenges that we've had is making that card back relevant again. So to be completely honest, you would be the exception. A lot of people don't typically look at the back anymore. And what we're trying to do is make that back much more relevant. So what we've done, and I'm glad you brought it up, is within our Major League Soccer set, again, this one just released a week and a half ago, we partnered with Bloomberg Sports to provide um, some extended analytical information on the backs of those cards. So for example, for a forward, instead of just showing um, goals scored for the season, you'll have passing efficiency percentage, you'll have goal efficiency percentage, you'll have uh, most successful um, shots. You would have a little quadrant with uh, percentages um, based on the quadrants and the success that that forward had uh, on striking on goal in, in those areas. So we're trying to present new information in engaging ways. I think the partnership with Bloomberg Sports has really helped us to do that with our MLS set. Um, and Barring success, or you know, we'll see how the product performs. I think fans are going to be very receptive, and if if so, we'll see if that has legs uh, in some of our other releases. Now, that's terrific stuff. I'll tell you, one of the exercises we do is my daughter's learning math right now. So one of the first things she'll want to find out from the athlete on the trading card is how old is the athlete. So we'll do 2014 minus whatever year that athlete was born. It helps her with their math. 
Uh, she'd be into the analytics information on the back of it, believe it or not. So it, it's got some great math applications when you start talking about numbers and, and teaching her things. But uh, it's one of the entry points into sports for her to learn about other athletes out there. So I, I'm a big believer in the trading cards, and I uh, think you guys have always done a, a fantastic job. I know you're on Twitter at Tops Cards. I see that you do some uh, interesting contests on your Twitter page to engage fans as well. Absolutely. So we uh, have a pretty large social media presence. We, we're at Tops Cards, um, just like you mentioned, and the team our marketing team really tries to conduct uh, giveaways, special prizes. You know, we're giving away autographs, cards, and, and boxes on there pretty frequently. So I encourage people to check it out um, at Tops Cards, just like you mentioned. Um, I think you will find that it's well worth your time, and uh, it, it's it's a great insight into the industry as well. We have behind-the-scenes pictures. We'll educate you a little bit about the card-making process. So. Uh, any steps that we can take to bring people closer to the game, uh, I would encourage them to check out Topps Cards. In this day and age, what is the best way to get your hands on Topps Cards? Is it going online? Is it going to your local trading card store? How do people go about doing that? Yeah, there are various different ways. Your local hobby stores, your mom and pop shops will have our cards. We still do great business with them. Additionally, a number of retail outlets carry Topps um, so those being your Targets, your Walmarts, your Myers, um, and so on and so on. Uh, we also are online at Tops.com and uh, the secondary market as well. eBay and other uh, auction sites are, are a good place to, to find the cards if you're looking for one-off cards specifically that you could just uh, purchase at, at a card level. Zvi Geffen, the Senior Brand Manager of Tops Trading Cards. You can find him on Twitter at Zvi. That's Z-V-E-E Geffen, G-E-F-F-E-N. And you can find Tops on Twitter at Tops Cards. Zvi, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Business Radio. We'll catch up soon. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the time. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in touch with SBR on Twitter. Twitter.com slash SBRadio. It's late in the evening. Lost on the side, I've been sad with you for most of the night, ignoring everybody here. Hello, my name is Sophia Berger. I want to tell you about the Pixie Project. The Pixie Project matches pets to the right people. The Pixie Project takes pride in finding matches for both people and animals. The Pixie Project also offers low-cost veterinary assistance. My family worked with the Pixie Project to adopt our lovable puppy, Scotty. He's a great addition to our family. So if you get a dog or cat, kitten or puppy, you should go to the Pixie Project. To learn more about the Pixie Project, visit them at www.pixieproject.org. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. My guest is Dr. Raul Desai. He is the co-founder of Restore PDX. You can find them at RestorePDX.com. You can follow Dr. Desai on Twitter at Dr. D Restore PDX. He's our health and medical expert. Dr. Desai, how are you? Good. Doing well, Brian. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join me. So, you know, I wanted to have you on because there's really an epidemic with pitchers in Major League Baseball. An incredible stat. Matt Moore, who announced this week that he needs Tommy John surgery, is the 20th pitcher in the last 12 months to undergo Tommy John surgery. It used to be Tommy John surgery was 
done for older pitchers, and it was done kind of to save their careers, a last-ditch effort. Now the number of pitchers that are getting Tommy John surgery under the age of 25 is really incredible. Why is this number going up? It's kind of, uh, like you said, it's an epidemic that is stemming from a really young age. I think it's uh, an issue, a kind of a societal societal problem that we're seeing with these young athletes getting pushed too hard uh, too early and it's both the, you know, the athletes and also the parents uh, of these gifted athletes pushing them at an early age they're pitching too much uh, they're pitching year-round and really as you look at it they're pitching for too much velocity they're really trying to you know, those numbers are real important for scouts for colleges and uh, you know these young bodies aren't built for uh, that much stress. We look at what they're really, when they talk about blowing out their arms, there's a small ligament on the inside of the elbow. It's called the ulnar collateral ligament. And if you think of it, it's kind of like a little rubber band, or I like the analogy of a little uh, rope that's holding the bones together. And it can only take so much stress. And especially when these uh, athletes are growing really hard, and they're getting the velocity. And you're seeing more and more uh, teenagers get to 90 miles an hour uh, plus. And they're, sometimes their uh, physical maturity in other places as far as like their shoulder mechanics and their back and their hips and their legs aren't as developed. And so they're using a little bit of abnormal form, but they're still getting the velocities and it's really torquing and stressing that small ligament. And over time, they're developing little micro tears and then, you know, these issues are probably bothering them uh, or at least subclinical early on in their high school careers. And then uh, by the time they get to the majors uh, or you know, the minor leagues, they get drafted, they're starting to see these uh, tears become, quote, blowouts. So after someone has Tommy John surgery, especially, again, if you're under the age of 25, can you come back and have a long, productive career? Will it undo the wear and tear that's been done to your arm? Or is it uh, you're, you're kind of playing with fire and it's a temporary fix? It can be a fairly successful surgery. What's interesting, um, and some of the reasons why these uh, athletes develop the, the strain and stress on the, the small ligament, uh, you know, they by the time they get to the league, especially if they're really talented or kind of this elite athlete that gets to the majors, tears it very early, they're suddenly shut down and really have to uh, work on a lot of the basics. Uh, they have a year. Uh, to take, and they have you know now major league coaching, uh, major league physical therapy, which is huge, that is able to look at all of the other uh, aspects of their throwing mechanics, and sometimes they come back a lot better throwers that are using their shoulders properly, they're using their, their backs, their hips, their legs, their push-off, and so their mechanics become uh, much improved, and so now they have uh, the ability to maybe take a little bit of stress off of that uh, elbow that abnormal stress that was going on maybe when they weren't throwing as properly. So that's uh, that's why we're seeing them come back. Uh, it takes some time, but they're coming back and maybe as actually better pitchers, better throwers, uh, even though they've had this kind of weak link in this surgery. You know, it's interesting. This doesn't really happen as much with Latin American pitchers. And, you know, one of the reasons I've read is because they're really trained to throw, you know, more in the 84, 85 mile an hour range, not the 90 mile an hour and over range. Is that really the number 90 and over when you're having high school and college and young pitchers in Major League Baseball throwing 90 plus 
consistently, that's where you get in trouble with arm injuries? I think it's a product of the velocity. It's also probably a product of how much they're throwing, you know, how many innings, how many uh, days, how many months out of the year are they getting any rest? Uh, we see this with just in general, and think of the uh, when the, with these younger uh, folks as well as the, the weekend athletes that we see in, in the clinics. That you're stressing tissue, and even from a young age, when you stress tissue, there are going to be micro tears and small injuries, uh, but the body is able to heal itself. But you have to give it time, and I think that's a, a big product of this: is that they're just not allowing the body to heal. Uh, when that you know, that little rubber band or that little rope is getting uh, small micro tears, they can still fill in, but they have to have that time. Uh, if you're not allowing that, I think that's probably one of the biggest things because this is not something where you know a single pitch at 99 miles an hour is going to snap that ligament. This is something that over time, overuse is breaking down that rope. Now, when you have you know new rope, it's real uh, taut. You see that kind of tight twine that's wrapped together. Over time, if you're not allowing that tissue to heal, it looks like that old frayed rope with the, the frayed ends. And that's what they're developing. And at a certain point, uh, it's that you know, a straw that broke the camel's back. And that's when they have that blowout. But as far as uh, the velocity, it may have some role, but I'm, I think that uh, that's part of it. I think the bigger picture is probably just the overall overuse. And you know, it's the American, well, as you I read as well, it's on that American way, that epidemic that's happening in all different you know, areas of sports. And we're seeing this in basketball and football and all of these injuries and ACLs. Uh, but these kids are really getting pushed to the limit. Uh, and I don't think that culture uh, is, uh, has dominated in such a way in other countries, especially like Latin America, where we see a lot of uh, influx of baseball players. I'm joined by Dr. Raul Desai. He's our health and medical expert. He's the co-founder of Restore PDX. You can find him online at RestorePDX.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow at Dr. D Restore PDX. All right, I want to ask you, uh, let's switch topics and talk about the NBA. Joel Embedi, Embedi, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his last name. He's the tall center from the University of Kansas. He's declared for the NBA draft. He's a guy who missed the latter part of the regular season and the NCAA tournament with back problems. So here's a guy in his young twenties. And when I see him, Dr. Desai, I immediately think of someone like Greg Oden, Yao Ming, you know, another rule of thumb I kind of have with sports is if you're seven foot plus, you're extra injury prone. And if you look at today's center in the NBA, it's really hard to stay healthy. So I wonder, you know, if I'm a team and I see Joel and Betty, uh, in the draft, do I steer clear of this guy? Because he's in his young 20s and he's already having back problems and his makeup and build just seems to be similar to someone like Greg Oden. Yeah, definitely a, a warning flag when these uh, centers, these tall centers are having injuries. I mean, a lot of times we see lower leg injuries, uh, knees, ankles, uh, feet. And it is a product of being so uh, tall and lanky. Part of it is they're growing into their bodies, and then they're also going under, undergoing all of these stresses. And, uh, but it's interesting with uh, any athlete, I think it's very individual. We have the ability now to really kind of delve into their uh, medical history, uh, also with medical imaging. We can look into what's going on, and pretty much 
kind of pan scan these layers and look at all of the different structures, what's going on, look at the kinetics. I mean, with Greg uh, Odin, he had a leg length discrepancy. He had some other issues um, that were going on. And again, little early signs with you know wrist injuries and lower leg injuries uh, that there were some some issues there. But I do think it's uh, in all of life, it's kind of this you know spectrum that you have some folks that are just uh, genetically, you know, what mom and dad gave you. And we talk about that in, in our clinics, you know, why do I have this issue? What predisposed me? Did I do something incorrectly? Or why did I have this degenerative disc? And a huge factor is obviously genetics. And uh, some of us, you know, we're tall and short and skinny and fat. And the same thing uh, applies to you know, the structural uh, rigidity or uh, structural strength of our uh, tissues. Some people have really strong tendons and are able to absorb forces that others, you know, for others would tear those. And the same goes for the discs. And uh, dating back, I'm dating myself, but I forget when this was, in the early 2000s for the, the draft, we had uh, looked at all of the, I was working with St. Louis uh, with the Rams and we were looking at different athletes for the draft. And it was pretty amazing to see uh, uh, MRIs. We had full scans of the whole body um, looking at different types of centers and offensive linemen, and some of them, same age, gone through the same uh, training, same high schools, you know, all different sports, and looking at the uh, differences in uh, patterns, like some patients would just start, some of these athletes would have uh, injuries, but you'd start to look at other places, and there were injuries everywhere, and other athletes, their spines look perfect. You'd think they would have, you know, playing that position would have certain injuries. They didn't have them, so there is a spectrum, and I think part of it is you just have to take it individually, uh, and also very carefully, if you're one of these teams, uh, really put a lot of time in medical evaluation. Uh, I'm biased at being a radiologist, but I think that's one uh, thing to look at. But there's a lot of other, we have uh, a nurse practitioner in practice that does uh, functional medicine, anti-aging medicine, and does a lot of cutting edge things. But there's a lot of other biomarkers and things that you can look at, uh, not only for uh, musculoskeletal health, but also for cardiac issues. Uh, something that we haven't heard of a lot in sports now, but you know, has definitely been a factor in the past. Yeah, it's just interesting to me because I remember, I'm dating myself now, but when I was growing up, you know, you had a player like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or Akeem Olajuwon or David Robinson, all guys who are seven foot plus, and they didn't get hurt like the guys get hurt today. And I think it goes back to what we just discussed with the baseball players, overuse of the body at a young age, just like the baseball players are throwing you know, hundreds of innings by the time they're 19 years old and they're throwing at 90 miles an hour. These basketball players, they're playing AAU travel ball. They're playing year round. So there's a lot of miles on their bodies by the time they even get to college. And you have to wonder, you know, is that taking effect on their bodies? Obviously it is. Before I let you go, I want to ask you a little bit more about Restore PDX. You guys use some real unique and innovative methods to optimize the health of your patients. Tell us a little bit about Restore PDX. Well, it's a uh, new practice. We've opened uh, about nine months ago, and it's a collaborative uh, practice that focuses on uh, kind of health optimization. Uh, we all play different roles. We have uh, three main uh, practitioners, and we each have uh, a specific focus and uh, but it all ties into kind of musculoskeletal health and uh, health optimization. We started as uh, more of a sports and spine practice. Uh, we do a lot of uh, 
diagnosis, uh, evaluation and treatment of pretty much from head to toe, sports injuries, uh, also spine injuries and chronic pain, so degenerative disc disease, uh, arthritic joints. Uh, and we focus, our focus is a little bit different. We try to, you know, number one, do a very thorough evaluation using any uh, tools and te- techniques that we have, including you know, physical examination. I'm a, radio- a musculoskeletal radiologist, so we use a lot of uh, dynamic ultrasound, MRIs, uh, and also any other you know, uh, tools that we have, even basic x-rays, to get the right diagnosis. And then our focus is to uh, treat, if possibly, non-surgically to get patients back to activity. So we use um, basic cortisone injections if there's an inflammatory issue, uh, all the way up to stem cell therapies. Uh, We derive those from the patients themselves. We use PRP, you hear that in the media quite a bit. Um, And then uh, over the past few years, we've noticed that when we're trying to use these regenerative medicine uh, therapies or injections, that if the patient is healthier, obviously they're gonna recover faster because we're using their own immune system to heal. We brought on another uh, Practitioner Jeff Grimm, who's a nurse practitioner, uh, trained in Columbia and uh, trained at Columbia, New York. And he does kind of health optimization, so making sure that the patient is holistically, and I love the term he uses, cellular optimization, so making sure that they're working really well. Because if you have a patient that comes in and you know, they're diabetic or they're overweight or hypertensive or have some other uh, you know, deficiency in their uh, nutritional status, et cetera, they may not heal as well. So we need to optimize that and not just look at, okay, you have this injured knee, we're going to fix this. We're really trying to take a holistic approach um, to the patient and, you know, uh, try to heal them. And it's been uh, a fun ride for the last uh, nine months. And you're an Ohio State Buckeye as well. So, uh, you know, you've been a sports guy for a long time. And, you know, I just like your guys' approach because, like you said, you use the holistic approach. I think you're proactive, so you're preventing things before – they become problems. And in a day and age where, you know, a lot of physicians, frankly, use the one size fits all approach. I think you guys really look at the whole body. How do you prevent injuries? Uh, how do you make someone more healthy? And, um, you know, let's try and make you as healthy as you can, but also let's avoid surgery. That's the other thing. A lot of doctors I see, whether it's at the pro level or just, you know, someone like myself who plays basketball uh, every once in a while. If you need surgery, hey, let's have surgery instead of like, okay, let's look at some ways that we can avoid cutting on you. Yeah. I think that you know, once you go down that road, you've gone down that road. I think that obviously many of us need surgeries. They're important. Uh, you know, God bless the surgeons that have gone through all that training and they're helping uh, heal people and fix people. Uh, but there is uh, a tendency for, especially in this country, to uh, overdo that. And I think that uh, we have to take a you know, very systematic approach look at the patient, you know, as a whole and make sure that that's the best thing for them. And, you know, we're lucky in this age that there are a lot of new technologies that are coming out uh, that are allowing us not, not only to diagnose this, because some of these issues in the past, I mean, these are small three, four millimeter tears that we couldn't even see before. Or if we could see them with MRI, we had no way of definitively treating them. But now with that convergence of, you know, MRI, we use ultrasound to guide needles into these tiny tears. Um, and we're able to put in, you know, PRP or other substances that actually heal the tissue. You know, having all those different technologies converge uh, has really made a huge difference for the patient and has obviated some of these um, surgeries. So it's a pretty neat uh, time to be in medicine, uh, and we're trying to kind of uh, delve into this world. And there's a lot of, you know, we're just on the verge of this uh, regenerative medicine boom, I think, in the next 
10, 15 years, you're going to see uh, that really change the, the landscape of uh, orthopedics. It'll be interesting. But I wanted to, before we go, really congratulate you. It's been uh, 10 years for Sports Business Radio, so I wanted to at least give you a plug um, <laughs> and congratulate you on your success and all your hard work. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, this has been a fun show to host for 10 years. We've had lots of interesting people like yourself on the show, and uh, you know, hopefully there's... 10 more years to come, but I appreciate that. Dr. Raul Desai, he's our health and medical expert. I've always enjoyed my interactions with Dr. Desai and his team. Uh, he's the co-founder of Restore PDX. You can find them online at RestorePDX.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Dr. D Restore PDX. And I just, you know, I saw these topics about Tommy John surgery and then I have been following this uh, young player at Kansas who's in his young 20s and has all these problems. And I was like, I got to have Dr. Desai on the show to, to talk about this. So I appreciate you joining me and we'll look forward to uh, having you as our health and medical expert going forward. And uh, you take care and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brian. Have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Raul Desai. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Podcast this show and any other past SBR episode at sportsbusinessradio.com. Back with more SBR after this. When the sun goes down and the lights burn out, then it's time for you to shine. Brighter than the shooting star. So shine no matter where you are. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. It's no secret that we're battling a tough economy these days. It's more difficult than ever for companies to position their brand in a unique way and reach their target audience. Sports Business Radio can help you, though. Sports Business Radio is syndicated in markets nationwide. Our popular podcast is regularly rated in the top 100 business news podcasts on iTunes and has listeners around the world. But our radio network and podcast aren't the only places your company will receive exposure when you join our family of sponsors. We'll also give you exposure via sportsbusinessradio.com and at our new Sports Executive Speaker Series events, which feature a conversation with a key decision maker from the world of sports in front of a live audience. And best of all, we can expose your product to the big-name guests that appear on our show. We'd love to have you on our team. Please contact me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com or at 503-701-2215 if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. My guest is Christine Brennan. She is a columnist for USA Today. You can also find her on ABC News. She's a commentator for NPR. She's an author, a speaker, one of my favorite guests over the last 10 years on Sports Business Radio. You can find her on Twitter at C. Brennan Sports. Christine, how are you? Brian, I'm great. It's great to be on with you. How are you? I'm doing really well. You wrote a column this week that really resonated with me. I thought, you know, this is really something that's underreported. You wrote a column about how the game of golf is losing a million participants per year. Share with our listeners why this is happening. Well, first of all, Brian, it's stunning. I mean, I I almost can't believe it, but these are the statistics. People can Google it. I did. That's how I see it. All the industry uh, conversation really is about this is this is a million a year and, and what are there 25 30 million golfers and we're not talking about obviously people who love it who are country club members we're talking about although I'm sure there's many of those too economically but um, we're talking about the participants on the weekend or people that are trying it and then give it up um, this is the industry saying it it's not me um, so wow first of all that's just they're hemorrhaging participants and why um, well of course the economy it just costs a lot of money, and people don't want to spend that kind of money. And I think we saw the big dip 
start after the 2008 recession. So that's clearly a, a huge part of it. It certainly takes a lot of time. And, and in our society, as we know it, everyone wants to do things faster and quicker. Our attention spans are less every year. Kids' attention spans are, are less. Um, that may not be a good thing. It's just a reality with video games, what have you. So um, it's just it takes a long time and a time when we, we don't want things to take a long time. It is obviously, it has been very reluctant to change and include women and be welcoming to women and minorities. Uh, and uh, it's just, um, people say it's just elitist and it's not fun and they don't want to be a participant. And it's just very hard to play it, too. It's a hard game to learn. Now, I say this as someone who uh, has played the game my whole life. My dad wanted to make sure his, his three daughters, just like his son, could play the game and felt comfortable. And so he would play with us pretty much every Sunday afternoon at a par three in uh, Toledo, Ohio, when we were growing up. Uh, when most men were out with their their buddies playing golf at a country club or wherever our dad was playing with us. So I love the game, but I haven't played it in a couple of years except for taking my niece and nephew to the driving range only because I don't have the time either. Um, so anyway, bottom line is um, the sport is in real, real trouble, and I'm not sure that it can even begin to deal with it because of these hard-earned, long-standing discriminatory ways and old-school ways that the leaders of golf kind of think about their game. So, Christine, who needs to lead the conversation about addressing this problem? Is it the USGA? Is it the PGA, the LPGA, someone else? I think it's a, uh, everyone, Brian, and they, in, in some ways they are. For example, the USGA, the U.S. Golf Association, and PGA of America started something three years ago, they announced it, called Tee It Forward. The idea being um, you've got to play faster to get more people on the golf courses, to encourage people to play, maybe only nine holes whatever, um, tee it forward means you play from the tees that are best suited to your ability. Obviously, anyone who's listening to us now knows that that means the forward tees, if you're not very good. Those are the red tees. They've also for years been derisively known by men, anyway, as the ladies' tees, which is ridiculous. And, of course, that goes right back to golf sexism. To call it the ladies' tees is absurd. They're the reds. Um, They're the forward tees. But what's happening, and I think this is the, the issue, and of course with the point of my column, which folks can still find on Twitter and what have you, is that I don't know that golf and golfers have it in them to do what they must do to stop the hemorrhaging of participants. Because, let's think about this for a second, Brian. Let's think of any guy we know, um, you excluded, of course, uh, basically anyone between the ages of 20 and 100 who plays golf, he has grown up with that term, ladies' tees, correct? Right. And there is no man that I can think of, including dear friends, old boyfriends, my brother, you name it. I cannot think of a man I know, and these are great guys, including you, maybe you'd be the exception, who would go to the red tees. And therein lies, this is going to fail. And this is a, this is a shame because the USGA and the PGA of America are trying to do something, but it's so ingrained, discriminatory, sexism, whatever you want to call it, is so ingrained in the culture of golf that this very simple little way to make the game faster, to have people teeing off from the right spot, if a guy hits it 150 to 170 yards, he's a 70-year-old man, go up to the red, sir, hit from there. That guy won't do it. He can't do it. And therein lies one of the huge problems about golf changing. I don't think they can. So you think it's about the speed of the rounds? That's one of the biggest restrictions is it takes too long for all of the reasons that you've pointed out previously in this conversation? Well, I think that, yes, a little, but more important, the titans of the industry, you right. know, the leaders of the game think that. This was their initiative three years ago. 
I don't know if it's failing miserably or just failing, or maybe it's getting a D, uh, D minus. I, I, maybe it's okay. Maybe men are going to those red teas. Every guy I know, I can't think of, and I'm sure, again, anyone who's listening is probably, in fact, I've seen comments or on Twitter, people reacting to my column saying, there's no way I'm going to do that. I don't respond to these people on Twitter because I have life is too short. I have no time for that. Um, all due respect to them. I just can't delve into this. I'd be doing it all day. But I thought, well, my goodness, that man just proved my point. Because the point of the column is these are all the things golf should do. Right. But when we look, Brian, at the fact that, uh, well, I think the key point in the column for me is that it's, uh, if you look at how women have been treated, of course, women are 51% of our population. They are uh, playing sports as never before. Women are more athletic than ever. Our daughters are your daughter. My nieces, uh, oh, my gosh. I mean, sports is just a part of their lives. Every bit is their, is their brothers, as boys around the, sit next to them in school. And so the game of golf would be so wise to go after these girls and women and try to inc- encourage them to play the game. It's the vast untapped market. As a demographic, it is untouched compared with maybe 10, you know, 10% of golfers are women, something like that. And, of course, you've got the men. You've got the boys, especially white men, white boys, and upper class and, and upper middle class. So what's your growth industry? It is girls and women. So here's a sport that knows that. There's no doubt about that. It's hemorrhaging participants, and yet it took Augusta National, host, of course, of the Masters, till August of 2012 to admit its first two women members. What are there, 300-some men? First two women. It was great they did it. I applauded that. I broke that story. I'm honored to have done that. But it took them till August of 2012. You still have Pine Valley, no women. You still have Burning Tree, no women. You have golf courses. I'm sure there's one or two in one in each city still, big cities. No women members. That's fine. It's a private club. They can do what they want. But if you're trying to grow the game, why in the world would you put a stop sign out, Brian, for literally 51% of the population? Because that's such a message. It, it permeates all the way down to the public course, even though women are allowed there, that this is you're not welcome and men don't want you around. What a dumb thing and amazing to me that sexism still trumps capitalism even among the uh, the most stalwart capitalists in our midst. That's just uh, – what a headline, huh? Amazing, isn't it? No, it really is. And your column resonated with me this week. As you know, I have a, a nine-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and she just got into golf about a year ago. I got her a set of junior clubs, and, and we've gone to the driving range, and we've actually gone out to the Muni. And then when I was in Maui last summer with her, she wanted to come play golf with me. So she has really embraced – Golf. Part of it, I think, is because she wants to do something with daddy. But the other is she is athletic and, and she likes the game of golf. Here's one of my suggestions for the USGA, the PGA, the LPGA, whoever would help grow the game of golf. If they said it's $100 for unlimited range balls and rounds of golf for golfers 16 and under, you can show up at your local public course. I'm not talking about private clubs and, and things like that, but your local muni. You could show up for $100 a year, a membership, call it. You could get unlimited range balls and unlimited rounds of golf. Now you're going to get some people who are bringing their kids out to play. It's more affordable. The kids are going to embrace it. They're going to want to go more often. What do you think of that idea? I like it, Brian. I think that's a great idea. It reminds me of junior membership I had at a tennis club, the Toledo Tennis Club, which was beautiful, 15 beautiful clay courts when I was growing up just a few blocks from me, away from our house in our suburb of Ottawa Hills in Toledo. And it was gorgeous. It was like Forest Hills. And it was, I think it was 50, it might have been $25 back then. I mean, we're talking a long time ago. But, um, but yes, we spent all that, you know, it was one sport really girls were encouraged to play back in the 70s. 
and I was good at it and playing it all the time, you'd spend every, you know, your entire summer day there and getting matches and playing and coming back in and, you know, and uh, raiding the Coke machine and, and having a sandwich, going home, riding my bike home, coming back. And there was a junior membership. That was tennis. And uh, it made perfect sense. And absolutely, I agree. I think that's a start. Now, it's getting the kids there, and it's um, obviously encouraging them and, and letting them play with their parents, uh, which, again, what are the tea times on the weekend? You know, you, and uh, we know that there's a lot of men and, and some women, too, who probably don't want a kid playing in front of them. I've run into that, by the way, and that's no fun either when you have the crotchety old men on the course and they think that, you know, my daughter and I are slowing play and we're out there at like 630 in the morning so we don't disrupt anyone, but you still find the the crotchety old guy who, uh, you know, wants to play faster. Right, and I think that that's what we're kind of talking about. And by the way, this is fine. I mean, for anyone who's listening who's getting kind of infuriated by this conversation, the crotchety old guy, the crotchety old woman – the middle-aged, the 40-year-old, the 30-year-old, whatever, that's fine. Keep doing what you're doing. But no, and, and actually they're probably thrilled that they can maybe get a better tee time, right, because there are fewer people playing the game of golf. But keep in mind that what you're doing is killing your sport. And um kind of reminds me, I'm not obviously, a, 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 actually grew up Republican and political, but it kind of reminds me of the issue with the Republican Party. You know, how many older white men are there? <laughs> and what happens when they die off? The Republican Party has been dealing with this issue. I'm not making a political statement one way or the other. Um, but, but that's that. That's a conversation topic around the nation politically. It's almost mirroring, I think, Brian, the same conversation about the game of golf. And, and again, it just is interesting to me that these people who know the problem, they, they, I don't think they have it in them to change it because I don't think the game of golf will ever change. They, these men don't want women out there. Now, they'll say yes to you, oh, it's great your daughter's out here. And the LPGA Tour, of course, is, is, is exempt from what I'm saying right now. The LPGA Tour is fantastic. And look at these great young role models, Lexi Thompson just winning the, the uh, Nabisco, the old Dinosaur a week and a half ago. There's a, some great things out there. My niece loves to play, and I take her out there. But right now she's also playing basketball and soccer, and I don't see her walking to golf right now just because she's got so many more options, Title IX, such a magical, wonderful law that's changed the playing fields in, of our country as well as our nation, as you and I have talked about. That, that idea of, of golf, which I could play with my dad, now there's so many more options. I wonder if I would have even played golf when I was growing up. That's another thing that they're dealing with. But uh, I, hope the, I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope the game of golf can figure this out, but not with the current leadership and not with the structure of discriminatory clubs, which really do set the example for the game uh, and uh, it's going to have to be that the ball manufacturers and the club manufacturers and all the people who build golf courses or have to bulldoze under them now, um, now they're going to have to go to these clubs and say, you've got to literally bring in 40 women into Augusta next year. Well, there's no way on earth Augusta National is going to do that. Hence, this is a vicious cycle, and I think they'll keep losing a million people a year. It's really remarkable. On a side note, you know, I, I've spoken with – uh, golf coaches who have told me that a great number of scholarships for women's golf at major universities go unused. They're just not getting utilized at all. And, you know, in a time and age when uh, university costs are only increasing, you would think, hey, maybe some people would embrace some women. Girls would embrace the game of golf. Their parents would get them into the game of golf. Golf leaders would encourage this so they could get a scholarship. But that's not happening either. I know, and think about what we're talking about here. I mean, I'm incredulous, and I hope my voice does. I, I'm shocked I, I, that, this, that this game has let it get to this point. These are super smart people, 
right? These are the best educated and the most elite among us. The leaders of these golf courses and clubs are well-educated business people. They're superstars. How they've let it get to this point is extraordinary to me. Um, and again, it says that they didn't want women around them and, and minorities too around them. And, uh, but you're right. I mean, well, first of all, any parent listening to us, do put a club in your daughter's hands because uh, you're right that the scholarship opportunities that, of course, years from now for a little girl, but those, those are there. The other interesting part of this that I, I, we really haven't even addressed is that this is occurring. The demise, I don't want to say the demise of golf. Golf will always be around. Golf will, because it will be a niche sport with all these rich people playing and well-to-do people playing, most of them are, are well off. They can pay for it. That then, of course, we'll always see it on TV because, of course, the car companies, insurance companies, investment companies, banks, whatever, will always want to sponsor it because you're still going to have this rich core in the niche sport. But this has been going on while Tiger Woods was in his heyday. Everyone thought, right, you and me included, that the game would grow and that, and that it would grow into uh, rural poor, African-American uh, neighborhoods, Hispanic neighborhoods. I mean, we thought it was going to just take off because of Tiger Woods. And the exact opposite thing has happened. It's really remarkable. Yeah, I will say this. Well, this will be the last thing we'll say on this topic. But so the ratings, TV ratings for the Masters this year, Bubba Watson goes on and wins. And I like Bubba Watson a lot and like what he stands for. But lowest ratings since 2004. And you can say, well, there was no Tiger. Phil didn't make the cut. Rory McIlroy wasn't really in the mix. But what you start to look at is Tiger isn't going to be the golfer that he was when he was dominant. Are the golf ratings going to go back to what they were pre-Tiger? Will interest in golf become, you know, niche and golf is going to become very much a secondary sport? I think so. I think it will because, um, absolutely. I mean, Tiger's 38 and a half years old. I hope he can come back strong. I wish him well. It'll be fascinating to see how he does whenever he comes back. You know, I'm hearing it won't necessarily be the U.S. Open, so there's another tournament. You know, who knows about the British Open? I don't know. We have no idea. Maybe he'll come to Pinehurst and play in the Open, U.S. Open. But bottom line is, this is what it's going to start looking like sooner rather than later. Even if he has a couple great years coming back, even if he has five or ten great years. I mean, you know, when he's mid-40s, Jack won the Masters at 46, Jack Nicholas. You know, the odds are that's that's pretty much the outer limits. Maybe Tiger, maybe he could win a major at 48, and that would be fascinating. But it's not going to be a lot. The old Tiger, those days are long gone. So you're right. That's another factor. And so, again, as interest wanes and as people just go back into watching it, as you know, people who love golf watch it, and there are plenty of those people. And, again, the advertisements and the commercials will always be there because these people can spend money. So that's the positive for golf. But, yes, those ratings are going to definitely go down. Rory McIlroy is fascinating. Adam Scott is great. Bubba's great. I, you know, Jordan Spieth was fantastic. I wrote a column on him. What a story that was, especially for those first seven holes, the 20-year-old from Dallas. But they're not Tiger Woods. They're not going to have grandmothers and grandfathers who otherwise couldn't care about golf tuning in on Sundays and planning their days around Tiger's round. They're just not going to do that. And so, yes, that's another issue that golf is going to deal with. And, um, you know, that's just the reality. And, and there's no one back – you know, there's no coattails for Tiger, right? You know, there's, there's not another – you know, 10 African-American kids coming up. And I think that we would have been surprised. I think back, you know, 15 years ago, we would have said, oh, yeah, there'll be many more Tigers coming along. And I don't think there are any. And that's just really interesting as well. You're listening to Sports Business Radio, and I'm joined by Christine Brennan. She's a columnist for USA Today. She's with ABC News. She's a commentator for NPR, author, speaker. You can find her on Twitter at Sports. So, Christine, this week, 
was the Major League Baseball celebration of Jackie Robinson. Everyone wore the number 42, but a remarkable stat released this week. And this this just blew me away, even more than the golf is losing a million participants a year. 67 total African Americans are in Major League Baseball right now playing. That's 7.8% of the league. Why are there so few African Americans in Major League Baseball now? Blew me away, too. I, I really didn't realize it was that low, although certainly if you watch, you, you see, um, and of course the Hispanic and uh, Latin American base has, has grown, of course. So you see a lot, a lot of, of those players with those um, nationalities, and that's terrific. Um, and then, of course, a lot of white you know, kids and uh, young men who grow up in the game. Um, and I think you know, it, it may well parallel a little bit what we're talking about with golf in that there are so many other options for kids. Um, so I'm not an expert on sociology and not an expert on, on what African-American kids are looking at, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the NFL and to see the NBA and to see uh, that kids are obviously very intrigued and interested in playing basketball, of course, and it's so accessible. It's easy. And I'd say this about a suburban kid. You know, you're playing at your school. Uh, you don't have to seek it out like you have to seek out a golf course, say. Um, now, I'd say, well, baseball, you can play that also at your school. Absolutely. But I also think there's something else at work here, and that goes back to what we were talking about a moment ago with Tiger and watching it and, and feeling it and loving it because you're watching it on TV. I really do think that uh, baseball uh, is, is going to take a hit. It already is among young kids because unlike when I was growing up where games, World Series games were on in the afternoon and you could have a, a speaker transistor radio into study hall, Baseball is not, um, it's on later. Uh, West Coast, fine, of course, but for the East Coast, kids are going to bed after an inning or two or maybe not even seeing any of the World Series. And I think that will have a big effect as, as we move forward. Does that have a bigger effect on the African-American community than it does on the, um, the white, you know, Caucasian community? I don't know. But anything that is not presented to a child in a cool form early on which is to say being able to watch the World Series on TV, watch the, watch the teams jump up and down with a 4 o'clock afternoon start on the East Coast. That's not going to happen anymore. But it was happening. And it was just another way to lure people in and lure kids to watch. It, what I did. And uh, now, you know, I, I'm sure I miss more World Series games than ever because, again, they're, just go, they're going late. So I think that's it. And then I think it's just, again, the nature of kids, black or white, uh, any color, any, any, any creed, any religion, any ethnicity, uh, things are faster. They want to move faster. And baseball is a slower, fascinating game for those of us who love it, and I do. But in general, it's not really attractive to younger kids. And uh, a study came out recently that I think it was a tie now between soccer and baseball for what kids like to watch. And that is a huge sea change. Um, and again, you see more African Americans playing soccer, which is a great thing. And on the U.S. national men's team or the women's team, uh, there should be more, many more African Americans. So I think it's just the competition with other sports and that baseball has uh, really you know, not been uh, welcoming in so many ways. The other thing, too, is – and you referred to this earlier in the conversation. We live in this instant gratification society. I say we live in a 140-character world where everything is brief. Everyone has ADD. If you look at baseball, 
you've got to usually go through minor leagues, and you could toil in the minor leagues for years. There are very few Mike Trouts and Bryce Harpers that make it when they're 19 years old into the major leagues. If you look at football and basketball, the wait to get to the major leagues, to get that big payday, to get onto the big stage is much less than it is most of the time for baseball. Do you think that's a factor in kids deciding, you know what, I want instant gratification. I'm going to go with basketball or football versus baseball where I may have to wait a few years before I get to the big league level. Right, I think that's a great point. And and you look at it with like Jordan Spieth, you know, the 20-year-old, of course, at the Masters. Now there's a kid, obviously, playing the sport. But um, no one waits anymore. You know, it's it's fast. I want it now. Everything about our culture is faster, quicker, um, kids grow up faster, which I don't think is a good thing. I, believe me, I wish this everything we're saying was not true. <laughs> I wish the game of golf were thriving because I think it's a great game to learn. The first tee is a wonderful program, by the way, and I should mention that. And it is doing its best, and, and there are some positive things out there. Um, but I think baseball is a great game, and softball, and, and I hope kids are playing it. Softball tends to be a little faster, and I think that's why it's so popular with girls and ESPN also, softball uh, broadcast. But, um, but I do think that. I think that everything is quicker, quicker, faster. I want it now. My parents want it now. Uh, if I have economic issues, I want it faster. Um, so, yes, throw all that in. And then just, again, basketball is so accessible. Soccer is accessible, at least to start with, especially for suburban kids. We should have it more accessible in the inner city and in uh, city and urban areas and rural, poor areas and what have you. But bottom line is, we sh- base- baseball, yes, kids play baseball, but just not as much anymore. They're kicking a soccer ball more every year. So I think that's it. And then just look at the demographics, the numbers. So going back to why African-Americans, why the, the, the African-American baseball player is a dying breed. These numbers are extraordinary. Well, again, if you're losing everybody, if you're losing kids like crazy to other sports, well, your percentage of African-Americans by population in our country is what, 12% something? So obviously any one or two kids you lose, that's going to hurt more when it's 10 or 12% than it is you know, X number, it's a majority or whatever it might be. So, again, that's just simple math. So to lose, you know, um, a thousand white kids, well, we probably aren't noticing that with baseball. But to lose a hundred black kids, well, now you really are noticing that. And then the numbers are dwindling. And that's bad. And we must mention, here we are on the anniversary just the other day of Jackie Robinson. Everyone's wearing 42. And the fact that it's more and more white people wearing 42, um, honoring Jackie Robinson, fantastic as it should be, but, oh, boy, what a sad thing that it's just the numbers are dwindling, and that is just such a problem. And for the Jackie Robinson you know, anniversary, it's like, oh, no, this can't be happening, and yet here it is, and that, that's a sad thing. Last question on this. Derek Jeter, Adam Jones, Ryan Howard, is Major League Baseball marketing their African-American stars as well as they could be? That's a great question. Obviously, so much of it is team-oriented, although MLB does some things. And I, I'm not even being critical because baseball, certainly attendance-wise and, and in these markets, is huge. Um, you know, I'm here in D.C., and, you know, Denard Spann is, is, you know, I think any kids watching the Nats knows that there's Denard Spann on the team. You know what I mean? I mean, how right. could you not? I mean, so uh, even though Bryce Harper and Strasburg and, you know, whatever are stars, but that's in Ryan Zimmerman, but that's that's not because they're white. I mean, it's just because they've been around longer, and obviously Harper especially is such a, a phenom and so interesting to so many people. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think because it's individual, so Derek Jeter obviously is a huge name, and he will be 
feted around the country already is in retirement, all the, all the things that will happen each time he goes to a city for the last time. So, yes, let's hope that there are kids watching Denard Spann or Adam Jones or Derek Jeter, and there's a, 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 you know, a young African-American boy who goes, I want to play that sport because, of, because I'm watching that. Let's hope. But, yeah, something's not right. Um, the NFL a few years ago, many, more than a few years ago, the Rooney Rule, you know, we, it said we, that it had to hire, it had to interview an African-American for any head coaching opening. And um, that obviously has had an impact. So maybe it's time for a Rooney Rule with Major League Baseball in some way, shape, or form. Not, not I mean, you're not going to make that in terms of who you're, who's going to be playing, but maybe there's a sense about this that there has to be a much bigger push. But now you're competing with all these sports. Obviously, we're talking boys in this case. Um, but, oh, my goodness, you know, it's just a real tough thing with kids playing soccer and, of course, video games, kids sitting, which I'm sure there are a lot of people listening. They're just sitting. They're playing these video games. They're probably playing MLB, you know, uh, video games. We've got to get our kids off the couch, and that's white kids and black kids and Hispanics and everybody else, and it's boys and girls. So there's so many issues here, but obviously it's taking its toll and trickling down, and it's having this impact as we're discussing. Always a fascinating conversation with Christine Brennan, columnist for USA Today Sports, also ABC News. She's a commentator for NPR. You can find her on Twitter at C. Brennan Sports. Christine, thank you so much for catching up. These are really fascinating topics that I'm sure we could talk a lot more in depth about, but uh, we'll catch up again soon. Ryan, it's always great to talk with you. I love your show. Thank you so much for dealing with these issues. It's great. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Stay in the know at sportsbusinessradio.com. Podcasts, blogs, and more. SBR. We'll be right back. We're going at it tonight. Tonight. There's a party on the rooftop, top of the world tonight. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, uh, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. We are back to wrap up this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks to our guests, Zvi Gaffin, the brand manager at Topps Trading Cards, Dr. Raul Desai, our health and medical expert from Restore PDX, and Christine Brennan, sports columnist from USA Today. She also is a contributor on ABC News and NPR. Great to catch up with the three of them this week. A reminder, the Sports PR Summit presented by Pistano is coming up on May 22nd at the MLB Fan Cave in New York City. If you're a senior PR executive and you'd like to attend our event, we've got a few spots left, just a few. We only have 100 people. It's invite only. If you're a senior PR exec and you want to attend, 
go to sportsprsummit.com, sportsprsummit.com. You can find the link to our Eventbrite page to register for our event. Some of our featured guests will be Jeremy Schapp, the terrific reporter from ESPN, John Wartime, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, and Mary Byrne, the USA Today sports managing editor. Also, ESPN, CNN columnist and broadcaster, LZ Granderson, will be there as well. Really, representation from every major sports league at our event. So very excited about the event. Gorkana will have a great networking lunch. We'll have a networking reception. So some great panel discussions, also some great networking opportunities. Go to sportsprsummit.com for more details. You can follow Sports PR Summit on Twitter at Sports PR Summit. Thank you to our show staff, Brian Griggs, our wonderful executive producer, Josh Blank and Doug Zanger, a podcast reminder. You can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to iTunes and type in the words sports business radio. You can subscribe to our podcast and we'd love to have you post a review as well. We're also on TuneIn Radio. We're on the Swell app and you can always find us at sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm on Twitter at SB Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Hi, it's Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I team with nationally known sports writer and broadcaster Rick Buecher former Nike PR senior executive Lee Weinstein and veteran strategic communications executive John Lashway to form media and social media training firm Everything is on the Record. The Everything is on the Record team provides a unique blend of strategic PR and journalism expertise to our clients. We have worked in the trenches in corporate boardrooms with CEOs and company spokespeople. We've also worked in newsrooms alongside editors and reporters. Everything is on the Record uses an innovative and unique approach to media training. Through the use of current media and social media examples tailored specifically for you, we prepare you for how best to relate to the digital media world that exists today. Whether you're meeting with a reporter, sitting at your home computer, or typing on your smartphone, you're on the record. We'll also put you through real-life scenarios where you'd be dealing with a reporter so when you see the real thing, you'll be well-prepared and comfortable. With a goal of enhancing your image, protecting your reputation, and helping you connect with the people who are most important to your brand, we will show you how to develop the skills you need to be successful in a world where everyone has a camera, a recorder, and a desire to make news. For more information on our services and to learn more about our team of communications all-stars, go online to everythingisontherecord.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at everythingisontherecord.com. You can call us today at 503-701-2215.